Everyday consumers are being bombarded with the next big thing in health, wellness, and fitness. What's the future of keeping ourselves healthy and what's just a passing fad? Hi, I'm Joey Thurman, and if you don't know me, I'm a health and fitness expert and author. I've been fortunate enough to work with celebrities, athletes, C-suite executives, and everyone in between. I've been featured on the Today Show, Live with Kelly and Ryan, Good Morning America, TEDx, and lots of other publications. As part of my ever-increasing thirst for knowledge, which ironically happened after college, I decided to create the Fatter Future podcast. What sets this podcast apart is that I am the guinea pig for these episodes. I don't only want to bring in world-class experts on the show, I want to truly get a first hand experience what it's like to say go on ketamine and trip for my depression go on a three-day fast drinking nothing but coffee and water for age reversal eat nothing but plants and get the blood work done to back it up or even get my brain mapped to see how messed up my head is from getting knocked around playing hockey once i try these things i bring on the experts to talk about my experience and explain it to the audience in a digestible manner and ask the true question is it a fad or is it the future? Because after all, we don't want to be fatties. What's up, everybody? It's Joey Thurman. Here's another episode of the Fad or Future podcast. Today, I have Dr. Paul Saladino. Yes, I said that appropriately. He's the leading authority on the science and application of the carnivore diet. He's used his diet to reverse autoimmunity, chronic inflammation, and mental health issues uh, in hundreds of patients, many of whom have been told their conditions were untreatable. In addition to his personal podcast, Fundamental Health, he can be found featured in numerous media outlets, including The Minimalist, Model Health Show, Bulletproof Radio, Dr. Gundry Podcast, one of my favorites, Ben Greenfield, Mercola Health, pretty much everywhere, even on TV, your pretty mug's been on, on the doctors, and I saw that. We're not going to go down that one there, but I did see the whole thing, and that was quite interesting. Um, and your book is available now, Unlocking the Secrets, Secrets to Optimal Health by Returning to Our Ancestral Diet, and that's the Carnival Code. Now, you've got your book out right now, and people can pre-order your second edition, correct? That's right. That's right. It sounded it almost like you sounded like you said the carnival code. It's the carnivore code. Carnivore code. Well, it is not that. I mean, some people may they may not say the carnival it's code. <laughs> like, it's not the carnies or anything. It's not the carnival code. It's, it's a good carnival code. Just had to make sure everybody knows. Yeah, the first carnivore. edition is out now. The first edition did so great. It was a bestseller. Um, we've sold multiple tens of thousands of copies. It got picked up by a big publisher in New York, Houghton Mifflin. And we're republishing a second edition with a new cover and, and some cleaned up stuff on the inside and an index coming out August the 4th. So if you're hearing this podcast and you want to check out my stuff um, and it's in June or July, you can pre-order the second edition. If you hear this podcast at the end of May, you can grab the first edition before it's gone and it's a collector's item. It's a collector's item. I need to order mine and, and get a signed copy of it. Better get one. I'm definitely going to. I, maybe I'll send you just like once I'm allowed to go to the post office in Chicago because we are filming this during the uh, COVID pandemic. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to send a post postage for you to sign it and uh, you know, maybe put your pretty handwriting on there. It'll be okay. I'll do it. Yeah, you got the first. See, this is the first edition cover. This, is, this cover is special. That's this great. My face. But the new cover is going to be a little different. So if you want the special self-published cover, you got to get it now. Yeah. See, when I did my book, I've got, it's, it's funny, the difference between like a fitness book and more science because I'm oiled up and got my abs showing and everything. And then you know, <laughs> see like a scientific book or something's got like a DNA molecule or you, you got your face and you're, uh, you're not showing your abs, but it's, it's how you sell a fitness book versus a uh, diet book, if you will. I know. I mean, well, yeah. Kind of both. <laughs> it's, it's kind of both. You are in shape, though, um, which is 
as far as, and we'll, we'll get into this, as far as doctors are concerned, um, is very rare, uh, especially in the, with Western medicine. Yeah, I don't mess around, man. I got the, I got the abs. You got the abs. I've, I've seen your, you know, meat dances and everything else. <laughs> steak <the> dance. <laughs> we could just talk about steak dance the whole time. We could. <laughs> All right. So you are a functional medicine doctor, correct? Yes and no. I actually don't like that moniker. Um, I'm a doctor. You know, I'm a classically trained medical doctor. And I went to residency at the University of Washington. I did medical school at the University of Arizona. And I went back to medical school after I was a physician assistant in cardiology for four years because I wasn't satisfied with the mainstream paradigm of medicine. It's too symptom-focused, pharmaceutical-based we're just trying to cover up symptoms with medications in Western medicine. So I said, ah, I can't do this as a PA. I want to go back to medical school. I want to learn as much as I can, have my own practice, have autonomy, and try and understand as best as possible the root causes of illness. And that has led me down a lot of rabbit holes that we're going to explore today. But I originally had an interest in things like functional medicine or integrative medicine or holistic medicine, all of these semi-synonyms. That means something other than mainstream allopathic medicine, but really, I don't think any of them accurately describe what I do, how I'm thinking, and uh, I think that so many of those terms are so broad these days, they don't really encapsulate what we do anymore, so I don't like the term functional medicine. I think too often it's been associated with pseudoscience, mm -hmm. and as you know, I try really hard to look at the literature and to look at science and to not just be hand-wavy voodoo. I'm not saying functional medicine docs or voodoo, just saying that it doesn't really, um, there's no good word for it other than just, I practice medicine, I'm a physician, I'm interested in understanding the root cause of illness and figuring out how to change that so that we can all lead the best lives that we can. Yeah, and, and that's really good to hear because, I mean, I, I've, you know, I'm a fitness expert by trade, so I've, I've worked with neurologists and all sorts of different doctors, and I've gone to chiropractors, which really, originally chiropractors were seen as quacks, and right. now it's being covered by insurance. So you can go, I mean, and 10, 15 years ago, when I was getting knocked around playing college hockey, if I went to see a chiropractor, it'd have to be out of pocket. You know, so I don't, I don't know if functional medicine is going to turn into maybe a, a phrase that people are understanding, realizing that people actually have more of a knowledge base. But I think when you hear a new terminology, people automatically assume there's some sort of quackery with it. Um, so I like that you're not trying to put yourself in a box because we all feel like we need to be placed in this sort of box. And people say, what kind of, what kind of fitness do you do? I'm like, what do you need? What's wrong with you? What do you got? And it's all contextually based. Uh, so if I'm hearing that correctly, it's kind of what you're looking at the individual uh, and trying to take care of that, that specific person. So I think that's great to uh, not to say that you're specifically one modality and trying to, you know, subscribe a pill to fix everybody's ill. Yeah. And even within functional medicine, naturopathic medicine, I feel like we all fall prey to the same ideology of mainstream allopathic medicine that we're trying to correct, which is here's a symptom of a disease. Let's give you a pill or a supplement to ameliorate that without correcting the root cause. That drives me bonkers. Ashwagandha, all these things, like these are the same philosophical conundrum. These are the same philosophical trap as pharmaceutical drugs. And I talk about that in my book as well. But yeah. what we're really interested in, what I'm just fascinated by, obsessed by is what is causing the illness how do you correct that? Don't put all these window dressings on it. Don't cover the symptoms with any pill, whether it's natural or pharmaceutical or synthetic. Just try and understand the root cause. And I've heard someone say in the past, I forget who the proper attribution here is, but 
when things in alternative medicine become accepted, they become part of medicine. So the, to say something is functional medicine or alternative medicine or integrative medicine is to say that's a modality that isn't yet accepted by mainstream medicine that's kind of fringe. And I think what we're all just trying to do is practice good medicine. And that's really what I think about what I'm doing. And like I said, I'm residency trained and board certified. And yep. I think too often people want to look at anyone, especially with what I do and the way that I think outside of the box and challenge the norms and use something like functional medicine to invalidate what you do. And I think that's, that's not fair. True. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of times it's anecdotal evidence and eventually it's anecdotal for so long that people start, people like, Oh, I need to start studying this or looking into this. And then, then you've got thousands and thousands of people, you know, that are feeling good for, you know, whatever it's a diet or workout or whatever the hell it is or meditation, right? I mean, meditation now is becoming mainstream. 10, 20, 30 years ago, if you're meditating or you're going in, you're going to a therapist. Oh, you must be crazy. Joey, why, why, why are you going to therapy? You're nuts. Like, well, I talk about my feelings, man. Um, so eventually we need to start looking into these things as it becomes more and more popular. So let's get into it. Carnivore code. Explain briefly, if I've got my two-year-old son here, what is a carnivore code? What is the carnivore diet? So basically there are two tenants that I'm trying to advance in the carnivore code in my book. And they're kind of around animal-based diets and a carnivore diet. And the first of them is that animal foods, animal meat, animal organs have been incorrectly vilified for the last five decades. We've been prey to mainstream media, which has misinterpreted epidemiology, which is sort of poorly done observational studies while ignoring interventional studies and we've been given this message repeatedly, and even more today, it's become almost a fever pitch. We hear this message that plant-based is the way to go for our health, that meat is gonna cause heart disease and cancer and colon cancer and shorten your life. And I just take a very strong scientific stance in rebellion against that and say, hey, meat is an integral part of the human diet. It always has been throughout millions of years of human evolution. Eating animals is what made us human. It's what was integral, central, probably the single biggest crux of what allowed our brains to grow into the massively complex structures they are today that make us intelligent, resourceful, creative humans. Animal foods are a healthy part of the diet. To leave them out is to leave out an indispensable part and we will be less healthy because of that. So okay. animal foods wrongly vilified for five decades, integral to the human diet, essential for optimal health, totally healthy, and anything that says otherwise is invariably poorly done observational research epidemiology that ignores actual interventional trials. And so that's kind of this, it's kind of this hit piece. It's this detective story. Why have we been told this wrong narrative? The second tenet is that plants exist on a spectrum of toxicity. And we all know this. We just don't understand how deeply it goes or how, how deep that rabbit hole really is. Plants exist on a spectrum of toxicity. They have defense chemicals. We're aware of some of their defense chemicals and we're not aware of the majority of them. And that's what I'm bringing light to in the book. Plants are stuck in the ground. They can't move. They're a life form. They've coexisted with animals for 450 million years. And they've had to develop these defense chemicals in order to maintain that symbiosis, in order to maintain an ecosystem. And those defense chemicals are what sort of make their lives viable as they are stuck in the ground. And like I said, we're aware of some of these plant defense chemicals. We're aware of, you know, at, at Christmas or, you know, around the holidays, you see those poinsettia plants 
And people say, don't eat those. They'll, they'll, they'll hurt the kids. You can't eat those plants. They're poisonous. We're aware that some plants are poisonous. You go out in the desert and you see a cacti with thorns all over it. You think, ah, that plant really doesn't want me to go chop it or eat it or doesn't want other things to go eat it. Rose bushes have thorns. But there are so many other chemicals in plants that are really conspiring against our consumption of them, keeping us at arm's length, saying, don't overeat me preventing our digestion and absorption of the nutrients in those plants so that we can coexist that we've forgotten about. So plants exist on a spectrum of toxicity. They have toxins. That's how they've co-evolved with animals. And people can be variably sensitive to those plant toxins. So if you accept those two ideas, that animal foods are really the best foods on the planet, they're the most bioavailable, they don't really have toxins in them because animals can run away or kick you or gore you with their antlers or bite you. Mm -hmm. And they're the indispensable, most bioavailable sources of nutrients. And number two, plants have toxins. They always have. They exist on a spectrum of toxicity, and some people are more sensitive than others. You really come to various versions of what I would consider to be a carnivore diet, which is, you know, I, I really try not to be dogmatic. I'm after results. I'm not after dogma here. And I want to find the root cause of things. And so in the book, I talk about various ways to eat a carnivore diet, which I believe can be more or less um, stringent or more or less specific to animal foods. But essentially what we're talking about here is the antithesis of a plant-based diet, which is an animal-based diet. Okay. So make animal foods, the majority of your diet, don't be scared of them. Realize the narratives you've been told are false. Make animal foods the center of your diet and understand which plants are the most toxic. Eliminate those. And then if you want to have some of the least toxic plants in your diet, I would consider that to be carnivore-ish. Okay. Again, I go into all this in the book. Yeah. Um, I break down all that kind of stuff. At the end of the book, I have a whole chapter on how to do the carnivore diet. That's the longest chapter in the book. So I don't think that everyone needs to eliminate all plants from their diet. A lot of people do and thrive. I don't eat any plant foods in my diet. I really have not in any uh, significant quality quantity for the last two years. But it's animal foods are the best foods on the planet. Plants exist on a spectrum of toxicity. Cut out the most toxic plants make animal foods the center of your diet and you will thrive. And then people can kind of titrate from there based on what they're individually dealing with. Some people may need to cut out more or less of the plants. Okay. So are you saying my mom was wrong that I shouldn't eat my fruits and vegetables? Well, partially. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, mom. But what sorry. the hell mom? Oh, there, I, there wasn't Google when mom, when uh, I, I was being raised. I don't think she can get on the internet there. But let's, let's actually examine that a little bit, right? Yeah. Why does mom say you need to eat your fruits and vegetables? Mm -hmm. What's your impression? If you, you know, if we had to channel your mom into the podcast with us, why does, why do you need to eat your fruits and vegetables? Yeah, sure. So, you know, when you're a kid, you're always told to eat, eat your fruit, fruits and vegetables, the same thing. Like breakfast is the most important meal of the day because you get your vitamins and your mineral, minerals and your nutrients from those. And it's going to help you feel much better and grow stronger and see better. And your, your vitamins, A, C, A, C, and K, all these things that, that, meat essentially if we're saying meat you know for carnivore uh, doesn't have right and then you know, th those greens will you know help your skin and phytochemical well, my mom's not talking about you know phytonutrients and everything else back then um but basically that's what we're saying because you you, you want to grow you want to get your vitamins you want to get your nutrients you want to grow healthier stronger smarter whatever it is right that is what the parents are going to be telling their children so why why is that wrong according to you so it's based on this idea that there are some nutrients in plants that you can't get from animal foods, presumably, right? Like you said, that plants 
fruits and vegetables are unique sources of vitamins and minerals, right? That's, that's where it comes from. Well, I'll throw it back to you. What's missing from animal foods? What vitamins and minerals can you not get from animal foods that you can get from plants? Uh, A, C, E, K. Um, what you else? Get every single one of those from animal foods. So every how, single one of them. How, how are people going to get those from animal foods? So A, you talked about vitamin A. Mm -hmm. There's a whole section on all these minerals and vitamins in the book. So vitamin A is retinol. Mm -hmm. The form of vitamin A in plants is actually beta carotene. It's not vitamin A. It's not bioavailable vitamin A. So if you want to get vitamin A, which is necessary for hair, skin, nails, and vision, the retina, the macula, you actually must obtain that from animal foods if you really want to get the most bioavailable vitamin A. In the book, I discuss that beta carotene from plant foods is 21 times less bioavailable in terms of vitamin A equivalents than retinol vitamin A in animal foods. Vitamin A is found in animal foods in the retinol form in egg yolks, liver, organ meats, which are a crucial part of every indigenous culture throughout human history. But if you're getting your vitamin A from sweet potatoes, that's beta carotene. There's an enzyme in your body called BCMO, which has to turn beta carotene into retinol vitamin A. And that conversion is incredibly inefficient, meaning that for every one unit of retinol vitamin A from liver or egg yolk, you need 21 units of beta carotene from sweet potato. Do you know how much sweet potato you would have to eat to get the RDA for vitamin A in a day? And sweet potato has the highest amount of beta carotene in it. Oh, if you're saying 21 units, let's go with... 10, 15 sweet potatoes? It's a pound. So not quite that much, but it's a pound of sweet potatoes a day to get the RDA for vitamin A from sweet potatoes. Do you know how much liver you have to eat to get the RDA for vitamin A? Mm, three maybe ounces. 10, 10 grams? No, okay. not even three ounces, maybe 10 wow. grams. Okay. Like the size of my fingernail, right? Wow. So, okay, that's vitamin A. Yep. You said vitamin C next. Vitamin yep. C comes up all the time with animal foods. People say, you're going to get scurvy. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get scurvy. Fresh animal meat and organs contain vitamin C. Our ancestors have always known this. Animal foods all have vitamin C. It's a complete fallacy to say that we cannot get vitamin C from animal foods. The next question with vitamin C, if we go down that rabbit hole, is how much vitamin C is ideal? We don't really know, but it's very clear from experiments done in the 1940s on conscientious objectors to World War II that 10 milligrams of vitamin C a day will correct and reverse scurvy with no clinical difference from 70 plus milligrams of vitamin C. They actually took conscientious objectors, they gave them scurvy, and then they gave one group 10 milligrams of vitamin C, one group 70, and one group 200 milligrams of vitamin C. They all recovered within a matter of days, and there was no clinical difference between them. So in terms of scurvy prevention, as little as 10 milligrams of vitamin C a day is all you need to optimize hydroxylation of the proline residues on your collagen fibrils, which is what vitamin C does in the body for collagen. Vitamin C does other things in the membrane, oxidizing vitamin E involved in glutathione recycling. And <clears throat> the idea here is how much is optimal beyond scurvy, we don't really know, mm -hmm. but it's pretty easy to get the RDA, so the recommended daily allowance of vitamin C from animal foods if you eat fresh animal foods and you include organ meats in your diet. Okay. Right. So then you said ACD. So we got uh, K, Cal, uh, obviously you got dairy, right? The dairy wait, wait, wait. council is going to want you to have a bunch of calcium. We can talk about that too. Yep. Plenty of calcium in animal foods as well. Vitamin K. So when I went on the doctors, they said, you can't get vitamin K in animal foods. And I thought, are you, are you, are you crazy? The only way you can get vitamin K is from animal foods. 
The only way that you can get bioavailable vitamin K2, which is menaquinone, which is MK4 to MK11, is from animal foods. Animal foods are menaquinone. Plant foods have phytoquinone, phylloquinone, much less bioavailable, doesn't work in the same ways. Humans are horrible at converting phylloquinone to menaquinone. There's a study, there's a number of studies that I discuss in the book. The most famous is the Rotterdam study. It was an epidemiology study. So again, it's an observational study, but what it clearly showed was that if you take the people, I believe it was done in Rotterdam, and you can look at the, the incidence of coronary heart disease, heart attacks, calcific aortic sclerosis, calcification of the aortic valve, very, very clear in that study that those who ate the most vitamin K, they divide the group into three levels, the tertiles, and the highest tertile was only 37 or 34 micrograms of vitamin K or milligrams of vitamin K2 per day. That's a very small amount of vitamin K2. If you ate more than that amount of vitamin K2 in a day, there was, that was the lowest risk of heart attack and the lowest risk of calcific aortic sclerosis. Well, guess what? They also did an analysis with vitamin K1. No association. Doesn't matter how much vitamin K1 you get from plants, doesn't protect you from heart attacks or calcific aortic sclerosis. Where do you get vitamin K2? Almost exclusively in animal foods. Detractors will say, you can get vitamin K2 in natto and fermented foods. You can, but it's only one menaquinone isoform. It's only MK7. So animal foods are gonna have MK4 all the way through MK11. And bacteria are only gonna make one of the menaquinones. So you can get a little bit of vitamin K2 in natto, which no one in the US eats. But if you wanna get the full range of menaquinones, it's only found in animal foods. You're not gonna get any of those other menaquinones in your leafy green vegetables. You're only gonna get vitamin K1, which has never been shown to be protective against coronary artery disease or calcific aortic sclerosis. So that's vitamin K2, that's K1, K1 and K2, right? So to say there's no vitamin K in animal foods is really only revealing um, uh, an incomplete understanding of the nutritional biochemistry of that vitamin. We talked about vitamin C, vitamin D. There's really no vitamin D in plant foods. People will say there's vitamin D in mushrooms. That's vitamin D2, which is ergocalciferol, which is not used by the human body. So there's no bioactive cholecalciferol in plant foods. Vitamin D3 is present in animal foods, but in small amounts. If we really want vitamin D, we have to get it from the sun. Sure. Vitamin E, tons of vitamin E in animal foods. Tons of vitamin E in animal foods. Animal fat, it's in egg yolks. It's widely misestimated or underestimated in animal foods. I've done studies on myself and other carnivores. Vitamin E levels are very robust and high. So just because the USDA doesn't do a good job of measuring some of these things in animal food doesn't mean they're not there. Right. I can assure you that none of the people I work with on carnivore diets are deficient in vitamin E and that animal fat from grass-fed animals has lots of vitamin E. In fact, there's more bioavailable vitamin E in animal foods than plant foods. And then there was one other one you said, um, what else did you mention? Well, I mean, obviously calcium is going to be the big oh, one. We can talk about that uh, too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And anybody listen bio bioavailable. So basically how your body's absorbing it, just in case you're not sure what bioavailable means. So calcium, if you're not carnivore, if you're, you know, strictly staying with animal products and you're not having, you're not having dairy, uh, essentially, how are you going to get your calcium? Right. So a lot of people will know that many human adults don't tolerate cow's milk dairy. Mm -hmm. And it causes all sorts of things, anywhere from lactose intolerance, which is going to cause GI issues, gas bloating, because you're not digesting the lactose sugar because of the non-persistence of the lactase enzyme. But 
cow's milk dairy is probably not a great thing for many humans because of other immunologic reasons as well. Casein and whey can be very immunogenic, cause lots of issues. The entire reason that I ended up at a carnivore diet, and we can talk about my story, is that my eczema just wouldn't go away mm -hmm. until I cut out dairy and plant foods. Yep. So it's not to say that all animal foods are uniquely easy for humans to eat, but milk um, is probably one of the hardest things for humans to eat. So outside of milk, which is again, pretty immunogenic and probably not a great thing for most humans, mm -hmm. you can get lots of calcium from animal foods if you eat the bones. And again, people will say, what? Nobody eats the bones. Yes, they do. They just don't eat the bones in Western American culture. Sure. I was hanging out with one of my friends last night who's Russian. And she said, yeah, when I was young, I used to eat the ends of the chicken bones. My family eats the end of the chicken bones. We eat cartilage off the chicken bones. Many indigenous tribes eat the bones of small animals. Mm -hmm. Anyone who's ever made bone broth yep. also gets plenty of calcium that way. There's calcium from the bones that moves into the bone broth. And if you make the bone broth with the trabecular ends of the bones, meaning the joint parts of the bones, the mm -hmm. sponge form bones, you can actually eat the bone after you make the bone broth because the bone becomes soft enough to eat. People will know this if they've made oxtail, the little vertebral bones can be eaten. So uh -huh. there's plenty of calcium in animals. And the, the theme that we're going to keep coming back to here, and I love that we're onto this so early in the podcast, yeah. is that if you eat animals nose to tail, which is how I advocate for eating animals, the way that our ancestors have always eaten them out of respect and out of nutritional cohesion, uh, comprehensive nutritional you know, formulation of eating these animals in your diet, you can get everything that a human needs in more bioavailable forms with less toxins. So though your mom was well-meaning, get your nutrients from these foods, she would have been better off giving you bone broth, a little bit of liver, and a hamburger, and you'd get way more nutrients with less toxins in more bioavailable forms. But that's why people think we need fruit and vegetables and we can go down any of the nutrients. But that's what I discovered in my research with a carnivore diet because I thought the same thing. I had eczema that was horrible throughout residency, throughout medical school. And I, at that point, was already trying to understand why my you know, what food it was, what was the root cause of my eczema. I didn't want to take steroids. I didn't want to take topical steroids. I knew that wasn't the answer. I was already on to the path. I was already detective doing my own sleuth work. What is the root cause of my eczema? I knew it was a food. I really had the strong suspicion it was a food. And I've done other podcasts specifically talking about the connections between dermatologic issues and food triggers. And I kept eliminating things from my diet. I did paleo, I did autoimmune paleo. And then eventually... I went to carnivore thinking, okay, I'm just gonna cut out all the plants. And my first impression of that was, I, I couldn't do this, I shouldn't do this, there are things in plants I need. So I did the research, what am I not gonna get? What nutrients am I gonna get deficient in if I do a carnivore diet? Well, in terms of vitamins and minerals, there are zero. <laughs> there are no vitamins and minerals that you will become deficient in if you eat exclusively animal products, nose to tail. If you eat the bones, the bone marrow, the organ meats, the connective tissue, and we're beginning to see this in the mainstream. People are yeah. starting to get excited about bone broth and organs and liver again. Yeah, so bone broth is huge right now. I recommend to all my clients, even if they are, you know, completely plant-based, like at least have some bone broth, uh, you know, that's going to help protect the gut lining. There's going to be a bunch of different stuff there. So, I mean, the bone broth is very important. And on this podcast, I try to stay neutral, right? Uh, but I, I, I like where we're going here. So carry on. Yeah, yeah. So, and, you know, it was my skin issue that drove me to do a carnivore diet. And again, I had been indoctrinated. I had been inculcated to believe that I needed plants. And so 
I realized I don't need them for minerals or vitamins. And the next two things that people always think of are, you need polyphenols and you need fiber, okay? And these are two more of the myths that I go against, that I fight head on in the book. The polyphenol myth is perhaps the most complex and the hardest one to explain, but I think that there's pretty darn good evidence that humans do not need polyphenols to have optimal antioxidant status. On Instagram, I'll joke, I'll post pictures of myself with my shirt off, and, and you've seen them, I'm pretty fit, I've got a six pack, uh, my skin isn't falling off, I don't have lesions on my skin. I, not that I can see. I, you know, no, I don't it have must high be, levels. It must be good editing. You've got a good I know, right, it's all Photoshop. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I mean, I don't have any evidence of oxidative stress when I've done my own blood work, look mm -hmm. at things like markers of DNA damage or blood markers of oxidative stress specifically. Okay, that's one thing I was going to ask. Do you, do you get your blood work checked? And, and that's one thing uh, I had Dr. Sean Baker on a few months ago. And he didn't have, that's one knock that he always got. He didn't have the blood work checked. I don't know if he has since then. But it's, it's nice, uh, carry on, that you're actually getting your blood work checked here. You get it checked all the time. In fact, I've got a gut test right next to me here. I'm going to do a longevity to, to check my microbial diversity. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. Mm -hmm. um, I get my blood work done every few months. I've done a previous podcast on my podcast, Fundamental Health, in which I discuss my blood work in granular detail. And I guarantee you that I am doing blood work on myself that is more detailed than any physician in this country is doing on any of their patients because I'm the experimenter, right? I, I've done hundreds of blood tests on myself. And as people will hear in that podcast, my HSCRP is rock bottom low. I don't have any, any evidence of oxidative stress, which you can measure with things like 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, malondialdehyde, lipid peroxides. I don't want to get too granular with those mm -hmm. specific lab tests. People want to hear that podcast. It's on my Fundamental Health podcast. But yes, I do my blood work. I've always kind of disagreed with Sean on this point and said, Sean, why don't you do your own blood work? We don't see eye to eye on everything, Sean and I. He's a great guy. He's a friend. Uh, and certainly he's an advocate for animal-based diets, but we do things differently. But yes, I'm hugely interested in understanding the intricacies of my biochemistry. And I work with clients all the time. So I see theirs as well on carnivore diets. And we do not see inflammation go through the roof. This is also something that, as I suggested earlier, we've seen in interventional studies with meat, that meat is not inflammatory to humans. So the joke that I have on Instagram is I have end-stage polyphenol deficiency and I take a picture of myself with my shirt off in the gym uh, looking, you know, obviously pretty healthy and say, okay, if I need polyphenols, when is, when is the oxidative stress going to catch up with me? That's the overt demonstration of polyphenol deficiency and the non-necessity of humans for polyphenols. But what have we been told about polyphenols? I'll try and break this down quickly, but again, it's complex. There's a more detailed explanation in my book. We've been told that they're antioxidants, which is completely false. And I'm sure that you understand this. Polyphenols are pro-oxidants. That's, that, no, no, no chemist will debate that, you know? No one can debate that a polyphenol is a pro-oxidant. And anyone who doesn't understand that doesn't understand biochemistry. The way that polyphenols work in the human body, whether we're talking about resveratrol or curcumin or another polyphenolic molecule, which is an organic chemistry term, is that they act as pro-oxidants, meaning oxidation is the loss of electrons. They steal electrons from other molecules, making free radicals or lipid peroxides or reactive species. And in the process of doing that, these polyphenolic molecules activate the antioxidant response system in our liver, which is known as NRF2. So it's not like we are eating plant molecules which serve as vitamins within our biochemistry. That's false. That's not how it works. Plant molecules do not have a role in human biochemistry. They don't. They act as pro-oxidants 
and they induce NRF2 in our liver and the antioxidant response system in our liver turns on and we make more glutathione and other enzymes involved in the antioxidant response. Well, that sounds well and good. That's the concept of hormesis, right? Let's have a little bit of a poison, we'll get stronger. Except that concept breaks down philosophically when you examine it. And this is what I've done in the book again. It said, why do you need those polyphenols to have an optimal amount of glutathione? You don't. You can prove it. I can check my glutathione. It's the same as yours or even more, right? And there are many things that I do in my life that also turn on the NRF2 system that are not plant toxins. Cold water swimming, exercise, ketosis, fasting, being in the sun, sauna. These are all what I call environmental hormetics. You don't need plant hormetics if you're living well, if you're doing the things that we've always done as humans. There's a study that I've talked about in the past with cold water swimmers in Berlin. They can show that when you swim in cold water for an hour, your glutathione goes down because you have increased oxidative stress. Well, what happens the next day? Your glutathione goes back up to higher than normal because your body turned on the antioxidant response system. By living our lives in the world, we turn on NRF2. We don't need plant molecules to do that. So the assertion that I make in the book is that plant molecules are redundant. We don't need them to be optimal. And not only that, they also have unintended side effects because in fact, they're toxins in the first place, many of them. Maybe they're pigments or toxins. So this is the idea that I talk about of a package insert. When you go to a pharmacy to get a medication, a prescription medication, it has a package insert which gives you all the side effects. But why do we believe that plant molecules are any different? Whether it's curcumin, resveratrol, isothiocyanates like sulforaphane, you know, there's chemotherapy that we use from plants and there's chemotherapy that we've synthesized and there's chemotherapy that comes from bacteria. Molecules are molecules. And in our body, a molecule that is foreign to our biochemistry that is not a vitamin or mineral, a molecule that is not involved in our biochemistry innately is going to have a side effect. It's going to do something else because it's going to be messy. It's going to bind to this receptor and that receptor and this other one. Why do we, we believe that a molecule like sulforaphane which is a special circumstance. It's an isothiocyanate. It's not a polyphenol. It's an isothiocyanate, but it's very clearly a plant defense chemical. Why do we believe that that is not going to do bad things in our body? And in fact, it does. We just never hear about the side effects because it doesn't benefit supplement manufacturers. It doesn't benefit Rhonda Patrick's narrative. It really is just, it's, again, these are all studies that are in my book. I kind of throw the curtains wide open on all this and expose it, but there's been lots of research to show that many of these compounds are very harmful for humans. So they have these collaterally damaging effects. They have side effects. They have a package insert. So if they're redundant and we don't need them to be optimal and they're going to have side effects, why are we eating them? Why are we eating turmeric for curcumin? It's, it doesn't make any sense to me. And yet everyone is bought into that narrative thinking curcumin is an antioxidant. Curcumin is an anti-inflammatory. Mm, maybe, Maybe curcumin, a polyphenolic molecule, has those effects in your body, but you know what else it does? It also affects topoisomerase 2 and 3, which are enzymes that wind and unwind DNA. It affects tumor suppressor genes like P53. It's been shown to damage membranes. It can affect the potassium channel called the Herg channel negatively. And I mean, the list goes on and on. The molecule is a dirty molecule in the human body. Why are we using curcumin? to be an anti-inflammatory without treating the root cause of the inflammation. 
Why that was just for everybody? Is it, everybody's going to have these same responses or, or is it individually dependent if they're having maybe curcumin that might, they, they might help them, right? And, and they might feel better or if they're my anti-inflammatory properties or can this be a broad statement for everyone, especially if we're just talking about curcumin here? I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty common. I think that if you're looking at the biochemistry, certainly between people, there may be polymorphisms in the topoisomerase enzymes, but I think for the majority of people, Curcumin is going to have these effects in the human body. And why do we need to get rid of inflammation in the first place? Why is everyone taking curcumin to get rid of inflammation? inflammation. Well, I mean, inflammation is, it can be a good thing, right? I mean, we're exactly. working out, we're, we're, we're creating inflammation and we're going to create that stress to, stress to the muscle fibers and tissue to create more growth. So that's why I talk about people like all the time, they're like, oh, I want to be inflamed, whatever. Like chronic, chronic inflammation or chronic elevated cortisol levels. Sure. That's a bad thing, but get up in the morning and cortisol levels go up and then they're going to fluctuate. They go back down. So it's really interesting how, I mean, you're right. You, you could go down the, the, the supplement. Everybody wants to you know, take a certain supplement to fix everything, uh, which there could be a time and place for that. Uh, but at the same time, you're, you're right. Chronic inflammation to a point isn't a bad thing. Environmental hormesis. That's exactly yeah. what I'm talking about, right? So let's talk hormesis. I mean, if we're gonna, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. So let's go with uh, so so meat. The 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 commonalities here, and we can go over them. We're going to each of them. Uh, so, so what like short chain fatty acid uh, re reduction if if we're not having plants or fiber. Uh, mTOR response if we're looking to live longer, which I'm sure you have uh, a, a lot of um, things on that. And you talked about fastings, which is one thing one way that you could actually limit that mTOR response, uh, and then longevity, and then obviously meat causing cancer and a lot of that research is a lot of those people actually actually have a lot of other lifestyle factors that go into that like they're obese or don't exercise or they're alcoholics or something like that so i mean and the main things like and then what, what about pooping doc if you're not getting fiber so I know I asked like three questions there, but those oh, are the I, 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 five. I have, I have to ask those because that's, if, if we do this whole podcast and I didn't ask about pooping, fiber, living longer and cancer, uh, people are going to give you shit. Well, fair enough. Again, <laughs> I'll just reiterate, there's, I've written a book with over 600 references that addresses all of these. Cool. You know, uh, it's in great detail. It's all in the book, but let's break it down a little bit here. Let's start with pooping because that's everybody's favorite topic. Yep. I pooped this morning and every morning for the last two years. And Good I have, for you. I have tons of clients who have done the same. You do not need fiber to poop. That is yep. a fallacy. Okay. And in the book, I talk about many studies which show that the removal of fiber actually has resulted in the complete resolution of idiopathic constipation in many patients. There are interventional trials which show this. To say that fiber is necessary for pooping is, uh, is an inaccuracy. That is not supported by the medical literature. That is a, an inconsistent fallacy that is parroted endlessly by people who have not read the data, okay? So what do we know about fiber? Fiber makes your poop bigger, but it doesn't improve the symptoms of constipation. Again, like I said, there are multiple interventional studies which show that in people with idiopathic constipation, the removal of fiber is incredibly helpful and in some studies causes complete resolution of those symptoms. I challenge anyone listening to this who has IBS symptoms, gas, bloating, constipation, or diarrhea to do three to four days or even a week with zero fiber and watch what happens. You can thank me later. Okay. It will go away. I can't tell you how many hundreds of people I've worked with at this point who find complete or significant resolution, life-changing resolution in GI symptoms with the elimination of fiber. No shit. Fiber, fiber is not good for humans. Fiber is collateral damage for humans. There's other evidence that fiber 
decreases nutrients, it pulls out minerals and vitamins, and it decreases hormones that are supposed to be enterohepatically recirculated. There's evidence that the more fiber women eat, the more likely they are to not ovulate, to have menstrual irregularities. There's evidence that as the estrogen gets pulled out with the fiber, progesterone gets messed up, FSH and LH get messed up, and the menstrual cycle is disrupted. Fiber does not do well with normal menstrual cycles in women. There's a, cycle, there's a study called the BioCycle study which shows that very clearly. Furthermore, fiber has been shown repeatedly to decrease our absorption of all those minerals your mom wanted you to get. Zinc, calcium, manganese, copper, magnesium. There are things in fiber, oxalates, phytic acid, which chelate these divalent cations and pull them out of your body. You wanna get minerals? Fiber is not the way to get them. The more fiber you eat, the less of those you're going to absorb. So that's fiber and nutrients and fiber and ovulation and fiber and menstrual cycles and fiber and constipation. Fiber will make your poop bigger, but it doesn't fix the symptoms of constipation, which are pain with defecation, use of laxatives and bleeding. That's not been shown in studies. And gastroenterologists will admit this to you if they know the literature and you press them on it. They'll give you fiber right off the bat, but that's not the problem. Constipation is not a lack of fiber. And adding fiber to the diet does not fix constipation. That's very clearly established in the medical literature. The next segue from that is short-chain fatty acids, which is another widely misunderstood thing. Short-chain fatty acids, we think of butyrate, right? Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? There are many short-chain fatty acids, acetate, propionate, isobutyrate, and all of these short-chain fatty acids can also be made from animal food. They can be made from animal collagen. And the other short-chain fatty acids, like isobutyrate, can act in the exact same way in the colonic epithelial cells as butyrate does, activating the same receptors, crossing the colonic epithelial cell membrane, acting as substrate for those cells. Furthermore, if you're in ketosis or you're doing intermittent fasting, beta-hydroxybutyrate sounds a lot like butyrate. That comes into the colonic epithelial cells through the blood. Butyrate from the gut, which is the main short-chain fatty acid everyone gets worried about, moves across the membrane of colonic epithelial cells and it's transformed into what in those cells? Beta-hydroxybutyrate. So we don't need plant fiber to get short-chain fatty acids. If you are not in a ketogenic metabolism, yes, your body is going to use short-chain fatty acids for the colonic cells, but you can also make those short-chain fatty acids from collagen, from that bone broth, or you can make them from ketones if you're fasting or you're having a low-carbohydrate day, okay? Yeah. The short-chain fatty acid thing is another fallacy and at this point, it's just, I kind of do the, do the smack my head emoji of just like, haven't people realized that this is wrong? The other thing, as I alluded to earlier, is people say you need plant fiber for a high microbial diversity in your microbiome. Again, false. It's been shown multiple times. Interventional studies show the addition of fiber does not increase microbial diversity in the gut, which we call alpha diversity. The removal of fiber does not decrease alpha diversity. There's an interventional study. I did a podcast with Chris Kresser and I debated him on this. There's an interventional study done at Harvard with a week-long trial of a carnivore diet compared to a plant-based diet. There was no change in the alpha diversity of people on a carnivore diet. No change. It did not decrease. The beta diversity went up. There was no change in the alpha diversity when fiber was removed. So anyone who's saying those things has not read the literature. They're just parroting the same information over and over. Sure. So you don't need fiber for constipation. It's not going to help your constipation. It's going to give you bigger poops, which are going to be more painful to poop, but it's not going to make them easier to pass. Fiber, you don't need that for short-chain fatty acids. You don't need it for microbial diversity. 
Not the case. Fiber has never been shown to improve colon cancer outcomes. Never. There are multiple interventional studies done between 99 and 2001. Two of them published in the New England Journal of Medicine with over 5,000 patients looking at both increased fruits and vegetables and direct fiber supplementation in recurrence of colonic adenocarcinoma in patients who had previous precancerous lesions on colonoscopy. Every single one of them has failed. Fiber does not prevent colon cancer. Anyone who says otherwise has not read the literature. Okay, so let's keep going. mTOR. Sure. Yeah. mTOR, the mammalian target of rapamycin, activated by many things, leucine, insulin, exercise, and a few others. Leucine is the amino acid that gets vilified. And David Sinclair and I disagree on this so much, and I did debated him on this when he was on my podcast. Leucine is not the biggest trigger of mTOR. What is? Insulin. If you're not eating plant, if you're not eating animal foods, like Dr. Gundry would advocate, or David Sinclair would advocate, you're certainly eating carbohydrates. And I'm not against eating carbohydrates, but I can guarantee you that if you're eating carbohydrates, you're activating mTOR more than you would be by eating animal foods. I did a debate with Dr. Gundry on his podcast, and I asked him, what do you think my IGF-1 level is? We don't really have a great test for mTOR activity in the human body. Most people would use IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor one as a proxy. When, I was, when I'm eating full carnivore diet, my IGF-1 level is below average. It's 90 or 100. The way we report IGF-1 is by a standard deviation. We call it a Z-score, kind of like a bone mineral density score. So you look at a Z-score is the number of standard deviations you are away from the mean. And I'm usually at least one standard deviation below the mean for IGF-1 when I'm eating a carnivore diet. Now, how can anyone say that I'm overactivating mTOR when my IGF-1 is below average? when my IGF-1 is less than Stephen Gundry's. It's absurd, it's absurd, okay? mTOR is something we want to activate. We wanna activate that to get muscle. The reason I have this muscle in my body is because I activate mTOR. If you want to be sarcopenic, if you want to be skinny and you want to be frail, never activate mTOR. You'll also become infertile, you won't sleep well, and you'll never have anybody that wants to hang out with you or go on a date with you because you won't have any muscle and you won't be able to do anything in your life, okay? So mTOR is not the answer. It's not the enemy. You need mTOR, and then you also need autophagy on the back end. It's pretty straightforward, right? We know this is how it works in life. It's cyclic, it's balanced. What's the other side? AMPK, in an overly simplified biochemical model. The other side is AMP kinase. How do you turn on AMP kinase if you're eating meat? Well, like I said, insulin is the biggest trigger for mTOR. If you eat carbohydrates, if you spike your insulin, mTOR is gonna be on longer and more strongly than if you're only eating meat. Again, I'm not saying that carbohydrates are the enemy. I've done many experiments where I've included carbohydrates in my diet, specifically honey, and I actually really like that. I'm happy to talk about that as well. But by eating carbohydrates, you're pushing your insulin up, which isn't a bad thing, but that's activating mTOR much more than me eating a steak. We know that. There are multiple studies that show when you give cells leucine, which is the sort of amino acid in protein that activates mTOR, and you give them insulin, Insulin is more, but I've never heard Gundry or David Sinclair talk about this, and I think that they're just missing the boat. And neither of those guys has a whole lot of muscle mass. So I don't want to look like either of those guys to tell you the truth in the first place. And I think they're, they're, they're well-intentioned, but sure. they're off base here. So mTOR is not the problem. You want mTOR. The reason you have abs and muscles is because you use mTOR in your body. So what do we do? We have time-restricted feeding windows. I yep. eat twice a day. 
I have a 16 to 18 hour fast every day. I do some days that are zero carbs. Some days I include carbs because I think it's important to cycle carbs. We can talk about that as well. But yeah, that, that's interesting. And that's a good comment because, yeah, I mean, our, our body definitely utilizes carbohydrates when we're working out predominantly, you know, especially in explosive movements or weight training. So uh, I wasn't expecting you to say that you do cycle carbs. But um, for me, if I was to recommend something like this to, to clientele, I would say to cycle them, you know, maybe you do a lower day, a, a medium day and a higher day, and then you can go through that. But um, that is interesting, you know, that you're doing that as well. That you're not just saying that you got to be completely carbohydrate free. No, I don't think carbohydrates are the problem. If someone has diabetes and is massively obese, low carbohydrate diets are very effective in the short term for reversing insulin resistance. I'm extremely insulin sensitive. I haven't been obese in my life. I've had a pretty good body composition for the majority of my adult life. And I can cycle in carbohydrates. What I found personally doing a zero carb carnivore diet was that after a year and a half, it wasn't worth it to me to have to work so hard to manage my electrolytes. I think that evolutionarily, humans would have eaten some of the less toxic carbohydrates, the less toxic parts of plants, the fruit. So we haven't really differentiated here with this, but in the carnivore code and in my cookbook, which will be out in the winter, I have this tier one carnivore diet, this carnivore-ish diet. I think there are less toxic plants and less toxic parts of plants. What's the least toxic part of a plant? It's the fruit. It's the part of the plant that the plant actually wants you to eat. That's where the carbohydrates are by and large. There are some carbohydrates in roots of plants um, and we can get into that as well. But I think fruit is probably the least toxic part of a plant. Now, plant seeds on the other hand, extremely toxic. That's the actual plant baby. The plant doesn't want you to eat the seeds. Some fruit has seeds that are so small you can't avoid eating them. Mm. It's mainly just the problem, in my opinion, is eating the seeds in and of themselves, separate from the fruit. These are grains, beans, nuts, and seeds that we're familiar with. Seeds that are in a fruit, like a blueberry or a raspberry, are probably not as big of a deal for people. But those fruits are carbohydrate containing. That's what the plant wants us to eat. Now, do we need them all the time? No, but we probably would have cycled them. Now, as I said, I do think that low carbohydrate diets can be very helpful for humans. There's good evidence that long-term long low carbohydrate diets result in keto adaptation. And there's studies like the faster study showing that if you do low carb long enough, you can store and utilize glycogen at the exact same rate as somebody that's using carbohydrates and you benefit by doing more fat oxidation. The reason I re-included carbs was for my own experiments, for my tribe, for people just to see like, what does it feel like to reincorporate carbs? I did multiple continuous glucose monitor experiments. And I talk about that in a recent podcast that I'll be releasing soon. But what I found was that it was just much easier to manage my electrolytes having carbohydrates a couple of times a week. I think that's the biggest challenge with ketogenic diets is the insulin level goes so low that we waste so many electrolytes. Now, that can be great for a few days or weeks, but for most people, it's helpful to have a reset to maintain some sort of metabolic flexibility at the level of the liver and the level of the muscles. In long-term, strict carnivore, or I should say strict ketogenic dieters, we see fasting levels of glucose rise. And that's, I think, when you know you've been doing long-term strict zero carb for too long. Uh, not to throw Sean under the bus, but Sean's fasting insulin or fasting glucose, I should say, is pretty darn high. It was in the 120s. And I think that that's because he has passed that threshold. Mm -hmm. He's gone too far with it and he needs to incorporate some carbohydrates from time to time. And, you know, like I said, Sean and I are friends, mm -hmm. but I think that he's so focused on never including plants 
that he's missing that a little bit. But I think that as I talk about in the book, there are many sources of carbohydrates for humans that are much less toxic that we can have from time to time. That's why I include them. It makes the electrolytes so much easier. Did I cover all those other points you had? We did mTOR, we did fiber. What other things, what other things you want to challenge me with? Because I mean, you said, if I don't cover these, my audience will say, I talked about poop. There's a few other ones that people always get worried about. I think we covered most of them. What else did you want to you ask? You know, so th this is probably brought up a lot. What about the blue zones? Okay, and so if you're looking at the blue zones, so the, the areas in the world that have the most centurions, sure. and they, they look at their... Uh, and yeah, again, I know you're going to get into that. Uh, so, and, and they look at their diet and obviously there's, there's lifestyle factors as well. But the one thing is this, a lot of them have in common where they're having legumes, which obviously that would be against the carnivore diet. What is your uh, response to that? Because I've had, you know, plant-based dietitians come on and they, they talk about that and they always bring up uh, the blue zones and longevity and then eating and beans and legumes and they're so good for you. Uh, what would your rebuttal be to that? Have you ever heard of Ansel Keys? Yes. Okay. So most people now know after the work of Nina Teicholz that Ansel Keys did, did some pretty shady stuff in terms of cherry picking epidemiology with the seven country study and saturated fat. Mm -hmm. Well, good old Dan Butner did exactly the same thing with the blue zones. So the five blue zones are Acaria in Greece, Sardinia, Loma Linda, Okinawa, and the Nicoya region of Costa Rica. These are five regions of the world where he thought people lived on average longer than normal. So he calls them a blue zone. They have a longevity, except he left out about 120 other places in the world where people live longer than normal because they didn't fit his model. And even in the five blue zones that he chose, <clears throat> other than Loma Linda, people in every single one of those eat a lot of meat. Again, I sound like a broken record, but I wrote a good book and this is all in the book. <laughs> Okay. Well, that's why we're talking about this, man. I people, do. I debunked the book. Yeah, I debunked the blue zones in the book. Um, so the Nicoya region of Costa Rica is only a longevity zone for males, which is kind of strange. Hmm. But what do we know about both the men and the women in Nicoya region of Costa Rica? They eat more animal products and more animal fat than the general Costa Rican population. So if that makes any sense with Dan Buettner's theory, you explain it to me, but that doesn't make any sense to me, okay? You eat more animal foods than the general population and you live longer than the general population in Nicoya, only for the men. In Sardinia, they have a dish that's a national treasure called Sarda Pig. If you've ever been to Sardinia, you know that for most of the year, they eat lots of meat. And the Sardinian farmers and pastoralists are just celebrated for their quality meat and the meat that they raise in the fields, right? And then the Ikarians are the same way. In Okinawa in Japan, it's not Buddhist like the rest of the country. They don't shun meat in the same way. In fact, there have been studies of the centenarians in Okinawa and none of them were vegetarian. None of them were vegetarian, right? None of them ate a plant-based diet. They all ate more meat than the general Japanese population in Okinawa. So, Again, so much of this has been misconstrued. Loma Linda is perhaps the most fascinating one. So Loma Linda is this town in California where there's a Seventh-day Adventist community. Now, this is um, where Dr. Gundry is from, and uh, he often touts the longevity there. They live on average seven years longer than the general Californian population. But Mormons in California also live seven years longer than the general Californian population. Except Mormons don't shun meat. But what do Loma Lindans and Mormons do the same? Well, they have family, they have community, and they also don't drink and smoke, right? Furthermore, if we look at the Loma Lindans, 
and we look at sperm quality, we find something pretty striking, that the less animal food they ate, the more plant food they ate, the worse their fertility was, the worse the sperm quality of males in Loma Linda is. The less sperm count and the less hypermodal the sperm are. So if that makes it a blue zone, then I don't really understand what a blue zone is. And I, I say in the book, it begs the question, exactly what part of Loma Linda is blue, right? So I don't know if you caught that joke, but... Right. Yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right. He's you talking about it. blue balls, people. He's talking about blue balls. <laughs> blue balls. <laughs> In case you guys didn't get the joke. Uh, so yeah, if you look at the blue zones, I, I just, I kind of just, I, I don't understand what people are thinking. It's a great idea, but what about Iceland? What about Hong Kong? Hong Kong has the third highest uh, life expectancy in the world and they eat a pound and a half of meat per day per capita. Well, that completely breaks the model, doesn't it? Yeah. And so what we're dealing with here, the problem is epidemiology. It's all associational research. It's not interventional research. So yeah, from associational research, you can make a hypothesis, but the problem with epidemiology is you can cherry pick. You can find six places in the world or four places in the world, or in the case of the blue zones, five places in the world where you can say that people live longer than normal, and maybe they do live a little bit longer than normal, and you can say they have a plant-based diet, but number one, you leave out everywhere else that doesn't have a plant-based diet, that eats lots of meat, and lives just as long, if not longer. And number two, none of these places are vegetarian, and to say they all eat beans, and therefore beans are a longevity food, you might as well be retelling the story of Jack and the Beanstalk here. It's a complete association with, with no testing. So if your hypothesis is beans are longevity promoting, then do a study that shows that. Sure. And in fact, that study's never been done, but what has been done are studies with lectins in beans, specifically phytohemagglutinin in kidney beans, and that kills rats when they give it to them in high doses. So, and I mean, the irony here is that my friend Stephen Gundry is, is totally against the lectins in beans and would say that beans are one of the worst things that you want to eat. And I agree with him on that one point, at least we agree on that one thing. Yeah. So the lectins in beans, specifically phytohemagglutin and other ones, have been found in animal studies to be very disruptive to the gut lining. So perhaps these nutritionists that are saying that beans are a longevity food haven't read those studies showing that lectins in beans create very significant problems in animals. If you give them to animals in high enough quantities, they die. There are hundreds of reported incidents throughout history of people getting food poisoning from undercooked beans. You ever had a raw bean? It's incredibly yeah, no toxic. <laughs> you don't ever want to eat a raw bean. It's so toxic. It has so many digestive enzyme inhibitors. That you'll be vomiting, maybe not one, but there's outbreaks that happen for the last 100 years that have been recorded throughout the whole world, undercooked kidney beans causing massive nausea and vomiting in humans. This is a longevity food? No, this is a plant food. This is a seed of a plant that a plant doesn't want to get eaten. And as we know, the epidemiology suggests an association that we must prove with an interventional study that has never been done, but you can create a fairy tale around it. But there are many other things that are common in these blue zones. Do I doubt that people in these blue zones are living longer? No. Do I think it's related to anything in their diet? Probably not at all. What is it related to, in my opinion? Probably community, probably an easy pace of life, essentially, you know, daily low-level physical activity, a sense of community, a sense of purpose, being in the sun. These are much more common, right? These are much more common. And as we know from studies of people in New England and other centenarian communities, within these communities, there are clusters of longevity genes. 
There are genes, FOXO3, sirtuin one sirtuin two CETP, APOC3. Polymorphisms of these genes are associated with longevity and they cluster in these groups. So in many of these longevity communities, it may just be the fact that they got dealt a good hand of genetics as right. well. So we're just, we're dealing in all these vagaries and the plant-based community wants to say, what about the blue zones? And I say, yeah, let's talk about the blue zones. I'll gladly thumb wrestle you about those. They don't make any sense, right? Yeah. You have done your research, my friend. All right. So let's skim over a couple more questions here. So should everyone go carnivore in your opinion? Well, it depends how you define carnivore. Mm -hmm. Do I think that the majority of people on the planet would, gen would benefit from having more animal foods in their diet from well-raised sources and by eliminating the most toxic plant foods? Absolutely. Does everyone on the planet need to go full carnivore? Absolutely not. Yep. Again, I'm not driven by dogma. I'm driven by quality of life. And if someone is listening to this and they are kicking tons of ass, don't change a thing. <laughs> don't do anything different. <laughs> if you kick major ass and you don't have blue balls, you're good. If you kick major ass and you don't have blue balls and you have a healthy libido and you sleep well, don't change a thing. Just turn off this podcast and go kiss your husband, or your wife, and go play with your kids and go outside. Don't think a thing. But if somebody wants to lose weight, if you want better body composition, if you want a better mood, more energy, sleep better, more libido, better physique, then think about these things. And don't just take what I'm saying. Take the vegans in turn and compare what I'm saying. Look at my book. Look at their book. See what you think. Make your own decision. But keep thinking about these things. That's who this is for. The people who are interested in optimizing and being better or have autoimmune disease or all these issues they want to correct. If you're already kicking all the butt, there's no more butt to kick. Perfect. All right, Doc, last question. Carnivore diet, carnivore code, fad or future? Future. <laughs> Present. <laughs> Present. <laughs> the one thing we didn't talk about today that I want to address briefly sure. is, is the ethics of eating meat. Yeah. And um, I, I think that this is something that's very relevant today. Joe Rogan just had Joel Salatin on his podcast. Joel Salatin has a farm that's a regenerative farm in Virginia called Polyface Farms. I've done events and I'm really good friends with the farmers at White Oak Pastures in Georgia, which is another really world like paradigm changing regenerative farm. What is regenerative agriculture? It's agriculture that is raising animals grass fed, grass finished in a rotational manner that mimics the normal grazing patterns of wild ruminants, wild buffalo, elk, pronghorn, deer, et cetera, and it doesn't overgraze the land. What we know about the carbon cycle on the earth is that the methane from cows has always been here because there's always been ruminants on the earth. And that methane that's burped goes into the atmosphere, becomes carbon dioxide, which is then inhaled by plants to make carbon dioxide, which then is fixed into the root systems of those plants to make a healthy soil and creates healthy plants, which then the cows go eat to make healthy animals, which nourish us. So the carbon coming from a cow is very different and has always been on the planet as part of the carbon cycle. It's very different than the carbon coming out of the tailpipe of your car or the carbon produced when you create electricity by burning coal. That's new carbon dioxide being liberated from the earth and adding new carbon to the atmosphere. The carbon from cows is part of the carbon cycle. The other thing we know about regenerative agriculture practices is that by farming in that way, you fix more carbon into the soil. That's how you get healthy soil. We all might remember playing in the dirt when we were kids and you can make a chocolate mud pie. Well, if the dirt you were playing in was that dark, as dark as chocolate, it was because that dirt had lots of carbon in it. 
And the way that carbon got there was through plants that fixed the carbon into the soil. And in order for that carbon to really get into the soil, the soil has to be fertilized by animals. So peeing and pooping of animals is the natural fertilizer that plants need to grow to fix the carbon from the atmosphere into the soil to make dark organic soil, the kind of soil that grows food. <laughs> the kind of soil that doesn't grow food is light colored. It's sand, it's loam, doesn't grow food because all of the nutrients have been depleted. Why? Because they've gone into plants in monocrop agriculture, which we've then harvested and taken off the land, and nothing has been composted back on the land because there are no animals on monocrop agriculture. So I hope people can hear what I'm driving at here. In order for an ecosystem to thrive, there must be both plants and animals on that land. Removing animals from the land is a sure way to destroy our future as humans because we'll end up living in a desert. We won't ever be able to put back fertilizer from real animals. You can fake it for a few generations with NPK fertilizer, which is what most farms in the US are having to do now, but it's nowhere near as good and it doesn't create organic soil like cows do. The more organic matter in the soil, the more rainwater is sequestered and the more carbon dioxide that actually goes into the soil. So if you want to reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, put animals on the land. Don't put animals in a CAFO, don't put them in a clustered animal feeding operation, put them on a regenerative pasture. This isn't even really debatable. This is the way it's been happening for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years. Before humans got to the United States, there were 250, 300 million ruminants in the US just grazing. Were they creating global warming 500 years ago? No. They were just doing their thing, peeing and pooping, eating grass, being buffalo, hanging out, right? Native Americans hanging out, appreciating them, recycling them back into the earth. They had fertile soil. Why was the soil of the Midwest so fertile? Because thousands of buffalo had died there, because thousands of buffalo had grazed there for hundreds, thousands of years before we got there and did monocrop agriculture, which destroyed it. You can't do monocrop agriculture. You got to put animals on the land. I'm not saying we don't have to, we shouldn't grow anything on the land, but you got to put animals on the land if you want the land to be healthy. So then what people say is, but you can't scale that. We can't feed everyone in the world that way. And I say, well, start at home. <laughs> start a little bit at a time. There may be an improbability here. I'm not sure we can feed 7 billion people on the earth, no matter what we do to tell you the truth, because the current system we have surely isn't working. It's completely possible for humans on this earth to outstrip the actual carrying capacity of the earth. What we know is that if we're going to get a solution to this problem, we're going to have to be healthy, intelligent humans who are resourceful. And the way to do that is to not necessarily listen to what your mom said, but to get nutrients from animal foods. You can get fruits and vegetables too, just know which ones are the most toxic, but make sure to get the animal foods so you're as healthy as you can be in addition. But the other piece of that equation is that the majority of the cows on this earth are raised for 85% of their life on pasture. So when people say you can't grass feed and grass finish every cow, well, you already do. Almost every cow raised in the U.S. spends 85% of its life on pasture and the last 15% of its life in a feedlot. Why do they go to feedlots? Bottom line, agribusiness, consumer demand, cheapness of food, right? It's not that you can't feed everyone that way. It's that everyone doesn't want to be fed that way because they're not willing to support that type of agriculture. 
We will bemoan it, but when the actual rubber meets the road, we won't vote with our dollars. But if we were willing to pay more for food and allow farmers to grass feed and grass finish animals that are much healthier and healthier for the ecosystem and vote with our dollars, it's totally doable. It's already being done. So total double standard there. Wow. Doc, where can everybody find you? <laughs> you look exhausted. <laughs> that, that, that was, I was, I was like trying to take it all in. I'm like, man, this is, I've, I've never actually heard it explained that way. You know, people just kind of skim over that a little bit, but I, I was really absorbing and taking that in. Um, absorbing the carbon dioxide, like the you're, you're breathing it in. You're breathing in the oxygen. I'm breathing it in. Yeah, uh, man. yeah, that's the way it's always been. So it just makes sense, but it, it, it goes really deep. It's political, right? Yeah. We don't want to pay for it. Right. And so we will, on one hand, we will bemoan the, the unsustainability or the fact that we can't raise all the animals that way. And then when a solution is offered, we will bemoan the fact that we have to pay more for meat that's raised the way in which we want. So it's really voting with your dollars and understanding what we value, but we can absolutely raise enough animals, grass-fed, grass-finished to feed all the people in the U.S. right now. You know, that's all we can worry about is our country. Yeah. And the other, other parts of the world could do the same thing. It's just, um, it would be more expensive because by putting cows in a feedlot, the cost of that meat goes down. That's the way it is. We make more meat, more fat in a cheaper way. People want to see it. You got to vote with your dollars. You got to support it, but it's totally doable. <laughs> it's absolutely sustainable. So if you want my book, thecarnivorecodebook.com. Again, it's available on Amazon until May 31st in the first edition. Then it's going to be pre-orderable in the second edition through June and July. The second edition will be out formally with an index and new exciting cover on August the 4th. It'll be ebook, print, audiobook. You can find me at carnivoremd.com, at carnivoremd on all the socials. My podcast, as we said, is Fundamental Health. That's it. That, that's it. All right. I appreciate it. Uh, it's Joey Thurman, another episode of the Fatter Future Podcast. Don't be a fatty, F-A-D-D-Y. Be a part of the future. Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure to follow on social at Fat or Future Podcast. You can follow me at Joey Thurman Fit. Don't be a fatty. Merchandise is available. Hoodies, hats, t-shirts, and beanies at fatterfuture.com. And make sure to check back next week. We've got a good episode for you.